Hello everyone, I'm Lucas Mack and welcome to another episode of the Golden Rule Revolution, where inspiration and purpose come from treating people like people and nothing less. I first got that concept of treating people like people when I was talking to a family friend who survived the Holocaust. He was a survivor of the Holocaust and he rolled up his sleeve one day and he showed me the tattooed numbers on his wrist, on his forearm wrist area. And he told me something I'll never forget. He said, Lucas, when you reduce someone to mere numbers, you have erased their humanity. And I thought that is what society's doing. It's erasing our humanity by driving us into data and binary decision-making, ones and zeros. You're this or that. You're left or right, Democrat, Republican. You're conservative, liberal. All these binary options, it's reducing us to numbers. And that conversation radically changed my entire perspective and worldview. And from that moment on, I have set out to treat people like people. I have, in my own pain and journey of healing, learned that hurt people hurt people. However, healthy people heal people. And in that context, I am so excited to bring today's episode to you. My brother, Rabbi Zappel, he is the very first Orthodox rabbi to ever come out publicly and, and acknowledge and admit that he was sexually abused. He is a courageous liberator of souls. This episode is very important for every person around the world to listen to, whether you have gone through abuse or not. This episode applies to all people. And this episode and this powerful rabbi shares a story that I know will encourage you to speak out, to speak forth, to speak up, to use your voice. For your voice is the greatest asset you have ever been given. My name is Lucas Mack. Welcome to the Golden Rule Revolution. We're getting right into it. Well, Rabbi, I'm so honored to have you on the podcast. Truly the first uh, of many, um, out of all the guests I've had on, you're the first rabbi and I'm honored to have you on. I reference a lot of the learning I do with uh, my rabbi friends and to have you on is a true honor. So thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Lucas. Thank you for having me. So tell, I mean, for, I think for the majority of the world, if they don't, if they've never met, you know, people think like Orthodox Judaism, they obviously know Judaism as like one of the five major religions on planet earth. But then Mm -hmm. um, to actually hear from a rabbi, most people I would say have never had that experience. And then um, out of all rabbis, a Chabad rabbi, which is such a beautiful path uh, to be on. Um, you have a very specific purpose that you're, you're walking every day. So could you share your life growing up and how you, um, became a rabbi and chose to continue the path? Sure. So I, my family, my parents are, are part of the Chabad movement, the world's largest Jewish outreach movement. Um, in 1992, they were asked, tapped, however you want to put it to open a Chabad center here in Salt Lake City. So Chabad is a very unique branch, I guess, of the Orthodox community. Unlike a lot of our, our cousins, our, you know, our, our, our like-minded friends, um, for the most part, we're observing communities are very, very insular and, you know, and they kind of keep to their own, whether it's in, you know, back East or in Israel or in other parts of the world, Chabad very much believes in taking our mission to the streets. And we believe that the continuity of Judaism and the future of Judaism really lies in sharing it with as many people as possible. And so Chabad has outposts in, you know, 4,200 cities around the world and 50 states and 108 countries. And it's, it's everywhere. So in um, 1992, my parents came here to Salt Lake City to open a Chabad center. And I was, you know, kind of raised in that environment. I was raised in that environment. Wow. And it's, um, it's unique. Yeah, it's definitely unique. I mean, well, specifically being a, a rabbi, you know, being the son of a rabbi here in Salt Lake City is a is a treat unto itself. But you know, I think being in a Chabad family in any sense is a very unusual experience. Um, you know, you learn very quickly that your parents do not have a nine to five job. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, their mission and their goal of spreading Judaism is something which encapsulates their entire life, and thus by default, your entire life. Mm-hmm. And you know, it gave me an appreciation from a very young age 
for living a life of service and caring for others and prioritizing other people's needs. And it was a very unique experience and one that I loved. And to the point that at a very young age, I decided that, you know, come what may, this is something that I wanted to pursue. I wanted to do this on my own one day. And um, I grew up here in Salt Lake till age 13. After my bar mitzvah, I left home to pursue a more full-time Jewish education as uh, there's not a whole lot in the way of Jewish education here in Salt Lake. And I went through um, the, you know, the yeshiva schooling system. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize that becoming a rabbi is like pursuing any other profession in life. You go to school and you get an education and you try to implement that education in the real world. Yeah. And that's what I did. I, I got my degree. You actually see it on the wall behind me. It's my awesome. certificate of rabbinical ordination. And I, um, I got married and I moved back here in December of 2014 with my wife to work in the Chabad Center. And um, we've been here ever since. We're now part of the Chabad team here in Salt Lake. What was that like for you? So you saw, did your, so your dad, your father founded Chabad in Salt Lake City. So you Correct. saw the, the building, the creation of the building and center and the dream. What was that like for you to move back and continue and now continue that, that dream? Well, on one hand, it's very different. Um, when I was a kid, most about operations were run out of my house. Um, you know, Chabad was slowly building the infrastructure that they now, thankfully, have here in town. You know, I'm talking to you this morning from my office, which is in our 30,000 square foot building, and, you know, we've got a whole bunch of things going on. And, and, and obviously, it's a lot more developed than it was when I was growing up over here. And that, and that continues to evolve as such. And it's a lot more developed than, than it was when I moved here. Uh, but I think that what you realize is that at its core, it's not about the bricks and the mortar and it's not about the square footage and it's not about, you know, the gaudy numbers. I mean, it's not like cities, Jewish numbers are never going to be gaudy per se, but you realize that the, the attitude that you start a community with, you know, that attention to one person at a time and, and really developing a community by caring for people on a very, very basic individual level, that never leaves. And so, you know, whilst your community might be a hundred times bigger and you're dealing with things on a much larger scale, that individual attention remains your core focus and it remains the main way that you accomplish things as a Chabad rabbi. And I think it's the main way you accomplish things as any human being, you know, as the individualized attention and the, you know, caring for every person, giving them the respect that they need. And that's how you grow it. Beautiful. It's beautiful, man. Um, tell, can you talk about um, Chabad, how it was started, um, the Rebbe and like the, because for everyone listening, I mean, obviously Judaism's an old, old, ancient, beautiful religion. It's a beautiful path. Um, and yet Chabad is not that old, but it's it, the, the movement, you know, started uh, hundreds of years ago with the Hasidic. But can you can you walk through like what Chabad is when people see Chabad? What what does that stand for? And who how did it get started? Sure. So that's a, that's a fascinating question, actually. So Chabad is a, is a subsection of the Hasidic movement. Yes. So roughly a little bit more than 300 years ago, you had the Hasidic movement, which was created by the Baal Shem Tov, a great Hasidic master who, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll break down his contribution very briefly. So, you know, the Baal Shem Tov came around at a time where Judaism was, was deeply struggling. And that was because at that point in time, your contribution to Judaism was pretty much one-dimensional. And that was, you meant something as a Jew if you were a scholar. If you were learned, and if you had the ability to teach and to study, uh, that was it. That's all that made you mean something. And if you were not in that boat, then you were literally a second-class citizen. And, you know, and the divisions within Judaism were quite intense at that point. And the reality is that, you know, in the old country, going back, you know, three centuries ago, in that part of Europe, ignorance was rampant. You know, there wasn't the infrastructure in place to enable everyone to get a solid education. And the Jewish world was deeply fractured between your scholars and your ignoramuses. And the mm. gap between them was immense. Um, and the Baal Shem Tov came around and the Baal Shem Tov kind of pioneered this, this reality that we can't view Jews based on their scholastic achievements. We can't divide Jews based on how much they know and how much they're able to teach because that's not a fair measure of, of stacking people up one versus the other. In addition to the fact that you should never stack people up one against the other, that's certainly not a good way to do it. Right. Um, and Shem have kind of innovated this idea that, you know, at its core, what's important to being 
a good Jew, what's important in your service of God on an individual level is your intent. And so if you're a farmer, you know, if you're someone who is part of the working class and you do not have the luxury of studying Torah 60 hours a week, and you need to put food on the table, you have mouths to feed, um, and you're going to be, you know, working intense hours out in the field and you never really got an education. If you're going to pray for a half hour before you go out to work and really mean it and really get involved in it on an emotional level, that's remarkable. Mm. That's your contribution to, to, to God and to Judaism. And that is something you know, spectacular, and that needs to be applauded and commended. And that was the innovation of the Hasidic movement. Mm. Um, once the Hasidic movement began to grow, uh, every little village in, in Eastern Europe and in what, whatever part of white Russia it was at that point uh, developed kind of their own brand of, mm. of Hasidism. And so for the most part, all Hasidic movements that exist nowadays are all referred to uh, by their origin city. So, you know, Lubavitch and Satmar and Bells and Ger and so on and so on and so on. These are all villages, you know, in Eastern Europe where these subsections were started. Chabad was started in, uh, in, a, in a little village in White Russia called Liadi by uh, Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi, the, the first Chabad Rebbe who was two generations removed from the Baal Shem Dev. So one of the Baal Shem Dev's disciples was his teacher. Hmm. And, and he... he really developed this idea of Hasidism into uh, a, a very intense intellectual experience. You know, it's important for us to really understand what we're doing because true inspiration is born from a proper understanding and a proper connection to whatever it is that we're talking about. Uh, so Chabad, actually, a lot of people don't know, Chabad is an acronym for three Hebrew words, Chachma, Bina, and Dad, wisdom, understanding, and intelligence, the idea of, of connecting with concepts. And once we have a connection with them, that really allows them to have a very profound impact on our lives. Mm. Um, that was in Liadi in, in, in white Russia 250 years ago, a little bit more. And as the world evolved and as geopolitics evolved and as what was always a reality back in the day, as, as you know, different countries felt towards Judaism, as that evolved, you know, there, was, there was bizarrest issues and then it moved more into, into Western Europe throughout the, throughout the generations. To make a very long story short, in 1941, the movement came to America. It had managed to escape war-torn Europe and left, you know, obviously thousands of its adherents behind um, to, to the perils of Nazism. And it came to America. It came to America at a time where American Jewry was in a very um, tough place. I mean, the Jews who had come to America had done it literally with the shirts on their back and nothing much more. And they had escaped the shtetl mentality, you know, the, the old village mentality that they had left behind in Europe in their minds was soaked in blood. And, and so many of their loved ones had died for that. And they were going to come to America and forge a new path. And for a lot of them, that meant assimilation. And that meant, you know, leaving behind everything that had been near and dear to them and their families for generations. And America was going to be a very different kind of Jewish experience, unlike the shtetl had been for so many centuries. Hmm. And um, actually, to, uh, Wednesday marks 70 years in 1950 when the Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem M. who was the seventh, uh, the seventh leader in the Chabad movement, when he took over the leadership of the Chabad movement following the passing of his father-in-law and his predecessor, uh, they ever realized that this was only going to work if we were really, if, if those who were still deeply connected to their faith were willing to take their message to the streets. To the streets. And he pioneered this idea of sending forth couples, married couples, to every far-flung corner of the world and encouraging them to really engage their community and to look out for Jews around them. And, and that is the only way that Judaism is going to survive. And 70 years later, you know, it's a great story. Uh, we could look back on it now and see the successes of Judaism, uh, whether it's here in America and around the world and in every, you know, corner of Africa. And that's really a credit to the Rebbe, to, you know, his vision, his pioneering vision of Jewish outreach. And it's, it's a remarkable thing which continues to grow until this day. And, and it's something which I consider myself very fortunate to be a part of here in Salt Lake City. And it continues to grow. And it's an amazing thing to be a part of. So beautiful. It's um, Reb, the Rebbe has a um, a quote, and I think this is a, not exactly. It might be exactly. I can't remember, but this is how it's stuck in my mind: is that that the world is still a garden, but it's our job to dig it out. It's our job to expose it and to bring forth the good. It's still good, um, and uh, it's just someone needs to take the plow and bring forth the life again. And I think that's such a beautiful concept for. Jew or non-Jew to understand like, Hey, the responsibility lies with us. It's not, 
well, who's going to do it? Well, I'm going to do it. If it is to be, uh, it's up to me mentality. It's such a beautiful path. And so I just thank you. And I'm, I really sure. want to honor you and acknowledge you for especially going to Salt Lake City where you talked about being a pioneer uh, in it. It's area. different. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, well, I just think it's great. So you, let's talk about the Jewish community as far as, um, you know, your story, your experience personally in, in your life and how I think I will preface it with this. Abuse and people who impose their will upon others is that's just human condition and it happens all over the world and it's happened since the beginning of time. And yet when people don't talk about it, it only makes the victim feel isolated. It makes the victim feel um, they're the only one or something's wrong with them. And I was just having this conversation. Um, two nights ago, one of the things I've talked about on this podcast is the word forgiveness and breaking it down in achava, meaning to give, forgive means to give as if it never happened, to love as if it never happened. And yet that is distinctly different than accountability for actions. Those are two separate things, but the way it's been used, the word forgive today is blended those together and it's really yes. to the victim. Do you accept what the victimizer did to you? And then, well, you got to forgive. Oh, so it's not even pointing to the victimizer and saying, victimizer, what have you done? <laughs> you know, it's always to the victim. And that is because abusers get back into power or whatever, they change the narrative. And I am on a mission to see a, just the souls of humanity liberated and to know that where love is present, truth can come forth resulting in our personal freedom. And when you share your truth, when I share my truth, someone else gets to share their truth. And it's just slowly the fire begins to, to grow. And, and that's, that's why it's so important. And I just want to, that's why I want to set that up is your story, you sharing your story right now, this, this podcast is heard all over the world. In fact, um, let me just give you the, the top, top 10 countries, United States, Spain is number two, second, <clears throat> listen to country, Spain, Canada, United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, Australia, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. People are listening to this in Saudi Arabia, Kingdom of Sweden, Republic of South Africa, Kingdom of Thailand and New Zealand. Those are my top 10 countries. I mean, wow. people are listening to this podcast truly all over the world. And I think why they're drawn to this in such a way is because this narrative right now, what I'm saying is like, you're not alone. Totally. So that's how I wanted to set it up, brother. You sure. just share your story. So let's, let's take it from the top, I guess. Yeah. Um, it's funny because I think a lot of people view, you know, my, my Jewish story and my personal story as being so vastly separated. Uh, the truth is they're actually very deeply interconnected. Uh, and I think that a lot of the complexities, um, one was born from the other. And so when I was growing up, there was, there is still no proper Jewish day school mm. here in Salt Lake City. And so I and my siblings were homeschooled, um, literally homeschooled. I know that nowadays the term homeschooled means a great number of things. We were actually schooled in the home, as literal as that term may be. Um, I'm the oldest of six. Uh, the first five of us, well, I mean, all six of us are pretty closely bunched together at six of us in a span of 10 years, and the first four were over six years. And so uh, we weren't going to school every day. We weren't out of the house from you know, 8.30 to 3.30. And um, it was a lot for my parents. My dad was obviously had a full-time job. He's a rabbi, and he's you know trying to raise a congregation, and my mom was teaching us. And so uh, they needed some help in the home, and they um, hired you know, some hands at home, you know, hired help, nannies, caretakers, babysitters, whatever you want to call them, uh, because we were literally home all day. And um, in the summer of 1998, my parents hired um, full-time help for the first time. They had kind of moved on to getting someone for 40 hours a week. And about a year later, um, our nanny, my nanny, began sexually abusing me. It was a couple months after my eighth birthday. Um, we just moved into a new house. Uh, and, and that was kind of a landmark for me, how I remember specifically, you know, when it started. 
Um, and it started. Um, you know, it was like like many patterns of abuse. It started, uh, I guess, in what you would call the gray area, um, which you know, it's amazing how nowadays God's given me the ability to to have healed to the point where I can really look back and understand of, of how it went intentional and how how much of a process it is, you know, and how how abuse flourishes in, in very specific situations and how it has to go along. But it started um mm-hmm. started happening somewhat frequently. Um and as a young child I obviously it put me in a place, I think above all of incredible confusion. Yes. Um yes. you know on a very basic level in addition to the fact that the things that were going on, I knew them to be wrong on, on, on any and every level. I knew them to be deeply not congruent with my faith. Um, you know, these were immodest acts. Mm. Uh, these are inappropriate acts. And them being incongruent with my faith um, put me in a tough spot because, because they were so outlandishly bad I didn't have, the, I didn't feel like I had the ability to discuss them safely uh, with my parents or with any sort of support system. And I kept quiet. And for lack of a better term, I did. And, um, you know, that, that I think created a situation which allowed my abuser to keep the abuse going. Um, and it did, it did continue regularly for, for a number of years and from age eight to age 13, I was home every day. She was in the house every single day. Um, mm. You know, the dynamics were, were, were kind of remarkable in a certain sense. You know, everyone was in the house. My mom was in the house all day. My siblings were in the house all day. And yet uh, it continued. Um, it went on. And as I reflect on it now, so many years later, uh, you know, I'll kind of add an anecdote and then I'll kind of jump back to the narrative of the story. Um, when I came forward, a lot of people in the observant community, and as you referenced Lucas, you know, for them, this was a big anomaly, right? You know, acknowledging this reality that sexual abuse exists within our community. And a lot of people asked, um, how can we stop this? What can we do to make sure that our kids won't be abused? Which I think is an extremely simple question, a basic question. That's a good question. Yes. And it's, I think it's one that every parent has, or I think it's one that every human being has is right? how do we eradicate this evil from our society? And I think a lot of people would get and still get till today, very annoyed and frustrated to a certain extent by my answer. Cause I have one answer to that question that is I provide across the board. And I firmly believe this given all of my experiences. And that is that there is nothing society can do to eradicate pedophilia. There is no magic pill that this world is going to take that is going to root out sexual predators. We can't do that. We can't stop people from following their worst urges. A lot of these people are, are have you know severe mental challenges and there's nothing that we can do as a society to, to cleanse them, to fix the abusers. Mm-hmm. What we can do and what we must do is we need to arm our children with the with the strength to talk about it. We need to create a society where our children can talk about it. Because I firmly believe, having been through what I've been through, that there's very little that we can do as a society to to prevent the first encounter from happening. Mm-hmm. But from the first encounter from happening to the multiple encounters after that, that's where our role in society comes in because we need to give the child the ability to say something after that first encounter to make sure that that first encounter remains the only encounter, mm-hmm. that they have the safety to talk about that before it spirals out of control. Because you know, I know in my experience, my abuser saw one encounter go by un- unnoticed, you know, un- unpunished, everything was okay. And then a second and a third and a 10th and a 20th and so on and so on. And, and to me, that's where our responsibility as a society lies, is to give our kids the ability to talk about it after the first time and to make sure there is no second time and subsequent times. Yes. But be that as it may, as a child, I didn't have that ability. And that was not, you know, that was not something which I was comfortable talking about. And so it, it, it went on and on and on and on. Um, as I mentioned, at age 13, after my bar mitzvah, I left home. I attended a high school in Chicago with Rabbi Kornfeld, and I uh, went to yeshiva in England after that. And I was coming home multiple times a year for Jewish holidays. Um, and you know, my abuser was still employed in my home, and it was still going on. 
and, and it went almost with for your, almost with the, your siblings or with you no with me um you know to this date i'm, I'm the only victim that's come forward um and and the abuse and you know in its entirety went on for almost exactly a decade um my parents stopped employing her for not not for any sort of her help wasn't needed for my 18th birthday um and so she stopped working for us and i and i my life continued uh, i think that at its core my biggest challenge was that i did not realize what was happening to me was sexual abuse yes um in my mind this was a a, a mutual sharing of of inappropriate encounters which made me equally as guilty if not more guilty than my abuser i was aware i was you know a pretty worldly young adult at that point that there was a concept of sexual abuse that you know the terms existed and in my mind one of the basic prerequisites for sexual abuse to happen was the coercion factor right so sexual abuse usually involves big scary men and adorable little girls with pigtails who are being you know pulled into a van and violated whilst they scream and shout mm -hmm. and if it lacks those elements if it lacks the coercion if it lacks you know the pain and the torture not abuse it's right. something else i don't know what it is but it's not abuse and, and that's by definition i believe that what had happened to me was not abuse and i maintain that mentality that mistaken mentality but that mentality uh for another couple of years and, and the first thing that really kind of rocked that mentality and kind of planted a seed as to what was going on was a tv episode that i watched uh, at age 20. Um, i was home for an extended period i had broken my leg and i was uh, bedridden after a surgery and i was binge watching law and order special victims unit of wow. all things um and this one episode where there's this kid you know who, who's on this very challenge and um where with the detectives that are him for his own indiscretion later on in life been a nanny as a child but he never dealt with the fact that happened to him because in his abuse and i'm watching this episode of the similarity where we're eating and i remember half reality check what so he he this kid was i mean that I have been sexually abused these years. I mean, like, what does that you know, even mean? And I had to deal with it. I had to figure it out. And I wasn't interested in, in, in accepting that reality. I wasn't interested in accepting that narrative because that came with way too many questions. You know, that that was, and, and, and furthermore, beyond all the questions that it came with, it was, it was an unfamiliar territory. It was a territory that I, uh, I believe that, you know, no one, with my lifestyle would ever have any sort of relation to you know abuse didn't exist in the orthodox community right. didn't exist right. in the chabad community so i was very content telling myself the same things that i had told myself for you know 10 15 years at that point which was this was my fault this was my doing mm. you know shame on me uh and, and and live with that that guilt because i think that as human beings as toxic as shame and guilt are for us in a certain sense they're more comfortable than to face the unknown mm. right you know shame hurts but we know it yeah. we experience it regularly we've put ourselves through it so we're more content to just go with that and to venture into this unknown world of oh, i've been abused what does that mean right and that was a choice that i made uh this you know that, that attitude continued for a number of years and you know as i look back um we're not wired to work that way. We're not wired to take our pain and trauma and lock it up and throw away the key. And, just... and I wasn't figuring it out. And I was, I was struggling with it deeply, way more than I was willing to give it credit. And, um, you know, in the middle of all this, I got married. Um, I had my first kid, which I think as I look back on it now was a, was a huge dynamic changer. Having yes. a child, yes. being a parent, you yes. know, uh, be, being looked you know, there's a way a child looks at you, even as a newborn, that creates within you this 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 notion that you know I am your protector, mm. right? You know, I'm the one you will look at and know that the world is okay. Mm. And if 
I need to provide that for you. I need to be providing that for myself. I need to be reminding myself that the world is okay. and I'm okay. Right. And I wasn't, I wasn't okay. Not by a long shot. And in February of 2016, um, you know, my parents and my wife had, their level of concern had grown to the point that they sat me down. Uh, in February of 2016, uh, actually four years ago this week, uh, my parents and my wife sat me down and very, very strongly encouraged me to go see a therapist, mm. get mental health help, which I was very resistant to. Um, you know, as as out of the question that it was to be sexually abused in the observant community, seeing a therapist was almost as heinous. You know, right. uh, <laughs> my my friends were never going to know that I was seeing a therapist. You know, that right. was that was a boo boo, and I did. I think that my life was unmanageable, unmanageable to the point that it was going to be my secret, but I had to do it. And I went and saw someone and he was the first human being I ever said the words to. And I told him that I had been sexually abused or to take that back. I told him, I thought I, I was, I was unsure if I had been sexually abused, sexually abused. And it began a long conversation and we talked for a very, very, very long time. Uh, and it, there were a lot of realities that needed to be drilled into me. First and foremost is the notion of consent. And that as a child, I could not consent to the kinds of things that, that I was involved in and I was abused. You know, it was a crime. It was as bad as the little girl with the pigtails. It was on the same. And it began a healing process. I think a lot of people don't realize it, it, it began a healing process that still goes on. Um, you know, I remember that one of the very painful realities that I really had to deal with in the beginning of dealing with this was, you know, I had always kind of envisioned going to a therapist similar to the physical recovery that I had gone through when I broke my leg. So, you know, I broke my leg, I had surgery, I was in bed for a couple of weeks, I was on a cast, physical therapy. And, you know, a couple months later, I was running and jumping and, you know, everything was, was good as new. Yeah. And, and that the reality to accept was, you know, you need to deal with this and you're going to be dealing with this for a very, very, very time. Mm. And there's nothing you're going to do to speed up that process, right? You can't take more physical therapy. You can't, you can't do anything that will somehow expedite the, um, that will somehow expedite the, the healing process. And I had to accept that. Um, that was a blow, but I accepted it. I still accept it. You know, I still deal yes. with that. Yes. And um, two years into it, the the opportunity came up to uh, at least kind of find out what recourse there was within the justice system um, and, and see what, what was what, uh, which was something which I was very not excited about. I was, or, or not for, you know, no one, no one forced me to do it. And I needed to make the decision to go along with it. And I was not going to do that. Um, first and foremost, because of, I, I, I had lived in the world long enough to realize that if I was going to report this, it would get out. It would be a public matter. And to a certain extent, I had accepted myself for having been sexually abused. My, my parents had, my wife had, and they were remarkable. But what were people like you going to think? Yeah, yeah, right. What were my neighbors going to think? And, yeah, right. and what, what were my friends going to think, right? Like the people that I had gone to school with, the bad community. Shouldn't know therapist and happened. What, what was going to happen? And I came to a very powerful realization was that I was going to be as I was going to feel were okay with me as much as I was myself. Hmm. To the extent I was and ready to accept myself for what I had done is what I would. Think in hearts and minds everyone around me and so long as i still had resentment towards myself for what i had undergone and i wasn't accepting myself that was going to be my concern about people around me. and so you know the, the the equation is pretty simple if i was willing to accept myself others would accept in my own mind yes. and and yes. and vice versa yes and that's what happened i went to the police um you know a bunch of miraculous things happened and, and the case made its way through the justice system and um, this Wednesday will mark one year that I publicly came forward. I, wow. I testified on uh, February 5th, 2019, and later that day, 
we had realized that testifying in open court would lead to the possibility that any sort of person could find out about it and report about it. And that's just the nature of our system. And so I had received a lot of advice to work with the journalist uh, on my own to kind of publish a story on my own terms. So, you know, people weren't piecing together the story from bits and pieces of information. And so the afternoon that I testified, a story ran here in the local paper uh, on my terms. And we worked with, I worked with a local journalist and it was a remarkable piece of work. And the story was out. And, you know, everybody and their cousin knew about it. And it has been, you know, a year that there are times that I need to pinch myself and realize that this is real life, that, you know, yeah. the the opportunities that I've had to share the story and the amount of people that have had the, the, the merit to help is, is remarkable. And it's been, been life-changing. It really has. First of all, um, you said the word confusion. And that's, I define when people... When I share a story of my childhood, my life growing up, I use two words, fear and confusion. And that's how I describe it. And I understand that confusion and that um, it's not people listening. If you haven't been gone through any form of abuse, when you hear the word confusion, it's not like an equation or problem that was been presented to you and you're not clear the answer. That's not confusion. Confusion is like this, this constant fog friction movement this cloud like whirlwind that you can never feel grounded in like what is real what is not real what is what is not what happened is this and it's all these questions that it's just constant confusion and so i i completely understand and, and acknowledge you i want to acknowledge you for you being what Hashem has called you to be, which is a soul liberator. And you had to first liberate your own soul by telling the truth to liberate others. And I just honor you and just acknowledge Thank that you. it is such, um, it's a life of, it's what a beautiful, and this is, I hope you track with me on this, but what a beautiful life of healing you get to experience because of the horrific pain and confusion that you experience, And that ironically, that is the gift that you get to bring healing to the world because you understood confusion and pain and you just sharing your story and then getting a journalist, which is my background as a journalist. And so to get a journalist to actually write a story with you, one that you're actually happy when it went to print, that's remarkable. That That is a miracle. Also, I would not, I don't want to minimize that. I think that's incredible. And I think also, and tell me what you think of this, but I think also when people hear, oh, an older woman and a younger boy, that's almost like people's fantasy, like, oh, that, you know, and maybe the buddy's like, oh, you know, right on or, but that is so not the case. It's so not the reality. It's confusion is confusion and, and stripping away innocence, no matter in what form is the most egregious transgression. I think one can make on another is to take away that innocence and to strip away the, the childlike wonder and beauty and hope and, and all those things. So, I guess in light of all that, how have you seen yourself continue? Like you said, it's a, it, it's a, you, we're healing you and I different, different paths every day, every day we're healing every day. We're healing. In fact, I just sure. want to share a quick story. Um, I was, uh, my son had a basketball game and I mean, they're at the age, they're five. They're just carrying the ball up and down the court. They're like running with it. No one's dribbling. It's cute. You know, the hoops are at like seven feet. I don't, it's really cute. But uh, this little boy who I saw at the beginning, his dad is very big and strong. Probably was his dad. Definitely. Well, my assumption is play collegiate football, maybe professional football in the Seattle area. He's big, strong man. And his son um, was not that athletic. And I watched during the game, I was running the clock and I watched during the game, this little boy. And at the end, 48 seconds left because I stopped the clock. This boy and another boy collided. And it's a little, it wasn't that bad. 
but the boy was crying and crying a lot. And man, I get choked up. I watched this little boy, he's crying, you know, and I'm like, wow, he's really crying. He's a very sensitive soul. That was my first, like, this kid's a sensitive kid. And that big dad of his, instead of coming over and saying, tough it out or suck it up or get back out there, this giant man, he's huge, just put his thumb on his son's eyes and just wiped his tears. Mm. And I started crying. I just, it hit some, something. And I went up to him afterwards and I thanked him for being a father who is gentle to his son. And I said, because the world needs more gentle fathers. And you sharing your story, the world needs more men who are willing to share their story of whatever it is to take the mask off because we need more rabbis telling their stories. We need more men telling their stories. We need more Jewish community telling their stories. We need more of humanity to tell their stories and drop the wall of perfectionism and facade and ego. And just because when you share, it touches me. When I share, it touches someone. When we share, this is how the world heals. And I guess I'm just talking a lot just because your story. Sure, no, I, I, I love that. A lot to it. You know, there's, it's, you're right. It wasn't the man to the little girl or the man to the little boy. It's an older woman to a little boy, but that is still stripping away innocence. And it is still as disturbing as any other act. I want to I want to comment actually on two things that you Please. said. Um, the first is the the comment that you made, probably very tongue in cheek about the journalist. So you know, um, the journalist was was a friend, actually someone in the community, and you know, in general, when you work with a journalist, you're you're a little you get your guard up. You yes. know, you want to make sure yes. that you know the the story is 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 good for you, and you know it, it'll sell papers for them, and you know you want to make sure that everyone's priorities are aligned, and so. Uh, we worked very closely together and, you know, she had made it very clear to me that she's not my ghostwriter. You know, she is writing a story, which she will write and, and I will not curate, you know, I will give her material and she'll go ahead and put that to paper and, and, and publish this article. And I won't have the opportunity to, you know, veto or, 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 or okay certain things that's going to happen, how it's going to happen. And so we must've talked, I probably think probably give her about nine, 10 hours of, of interview footage. Hmm. Um, you know, recorded conversations. And so she calls me the night before this big day. So this is the night and the following morning, I'm going into court and testifying for the first time in open court about everything. And she's calling me the night before. Uh, she wanted to just kind of fact check some of the things that she wrote, you know, some of the things that which she had understood from the recording that she got them right, you know, names, dates, places, etc. Yeah. And so she Though she had told me that she, uh, she's not going to show me the article before it's published, she read me probably eighty percent on the phone that night because you know it's all it's all the fact check it. And as nervous as I am that night before because of the hearing the next morning, my stomach is doing you know backflips because I'm listening to some of the quotes that she put in, and I gave her a lot of material, and I and I knew as I was doing that that of all the material that I'm giving her, maybe what. 3% of what I'm saying is actually going to make it into the article. So she has a lot of latitude over here, which quotes she wants to put in. And of all the quotes that she could have possibly put in, the ones that she includes are the most, you know, soul bearing and are the most, you know, painful in a certain sense. And I remember saying to her, I'm like, why those, you know, there was a lot of good material in these interviews. Why are you picking these quotes? You know, the most vulnerable and like, you know, the, 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 it was painful. Like you could have gone with anything. And she says, listen, remember, you know, this is, this is the, the dynamic over here. You know, you gotta, you gotta trust me. You gotta go with it. Mm. And, and that's what happened. And, and the article ran and the feedback that I would get subsequently from other survivors and people who were really touched by the story was how, how much it resonated with them, how authentic it felt, you know, and, and it wasn't me going through that experience will really appreciate authenticity and people really appreciate vulnerability and people really appreciate you being real about yourself. And, 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 and that gives others the ability to be real and, and that light only spreads. And it was a very powerful lesson for me, you know, of all the parts of the story that I could have told it was those sentences that really made the most profound impact. The second comment that I wanted to make is because I think this is this is really at the heart of you know of this issue is that you know the reality is that in today's society uh, you know 
issues like sexual assault and sexual abuse and, 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 and things of this nature are not being swept under the rug and people are coming forward about it. And it's, it's very empowering. And the reality is that for a young man to, you know, have been sexually abused by an older woman is, is probably the least desirable, mm. you know, of all these different encounters. And, you know, and there's, uh, everyone had told me that when the story came out, not to read the online comments, everybody had warned me, don't read the online comments. One day I read the online comments and, you know, of course, a large section of the online comments are, you know, oh, well, I guess he was, you know, messing around and then he didn't like it and, you know, and then it became a crime, you know, really, really hurtful stuff. And there was a moment at the trial took place in November and, you know, myself and, and the prosecution team, we all felt that this trial was was actually a really powerful learning experience for the jury and for, you know, and for people to, to understand the dynamics of a young boy being sexually abused by an older woman. And there was this very powerful moment at trial where the defense attorney was kind of basically, you know, questioning the very premise of the entire situation by asking what, you know, my abuser was 50 when the abuse started. What, what does a 50 year old woman get from being sexually involved with a small child and the point he was making is you know here's a woman who's married who presumably has a healthy sexual relationship at home what is she trying to supplement with you know messing around with a little boy and what the prosecutor shared with the jury and what i really feel the world needs to be educated on is that sexual abuse is not about sex or it's not primarily about sex it's about power yes it's a power dynamic and so, you know, I don't know if my abuser was lacking in her sexual life that she sought to supplement that with a little boy. What I'm quite sure she was lacking is in a power dynamic. Mm-hmm. And she sought to take that power from someone who could give it to her, you know, from someone who she could take it from relatively easily, uh, a small child. And so, and so that's how that, you know, relationship evolves. And I think that's powerful because I think that's something which unites us. You know, I think that in that sense, that that dynamic of abuse being you know, having our power taken away by somebody who seeks to manipulate us because of a power deficiency in their own life is something which is sadly so common across the human experience. Mm. And I think that when you really get down to the heart of the issue, you 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 take away all the different things, you know, oh well, I'm a female survivor of sexual abuse, I'm a male survivor, my abuser was this, my abuser was that, you know, and all these things which which seem to differentiate between all these different sorts of issues they're really at their core all the same you know this is these are people who had a power deficiency in their life who sought to take that power that they needed to supplement from a defenseless child and 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 that unites us and that ability to stand up and say you know i was powerless you know i was in a situation where i could not defend myself i felt broken and isolated and, and my abuser, in a certain sense, had gotten from me in that moment what she wanted. She had taken my power. She had taken my, almost my ability to be human. To stand up and say that and to realize how many other people, whatever form of whatever they've gone through, experience the same thing is unifying. And it's empowering and it's strengthening because there are so many people in this world like that. who It's not necessarily sexual abuse. You know, it's, yes. it's something else. It's another adverse set of circumstances that they've gone through. And it's 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 unifying. so beautiful i'm so glad you said that um power and um i can take when I, I i don't know if you saw the ted talk i did but it's stopping the the cycle of child abuse i mentioned six forms of, of abuse there's verbal abuse emotional abuse uh, physical abuse sexual abuse psychological abuse and then there's spiritual abuse also all forms of people with power using a threat, intimidation, violence, coercion, whatever, to assert that power over someone who has less than. And, and why I shared that and why I'm bringing that up now is I'm not trying to, I think the movement that I'm working on creating is not to go around indicting perpetrators or indicting. It's saying, we must acknowledge the only way a perpetrator can be free. I want their freedom as much as I want my freedom, but the only way they can be free is to share their story of what actually has happened to them and what they're doing 
just as much as I can be free to share what happened to me and what I am doing. We are in the same boat. It's just if, if freedom truly is the mission, which I, I desire for people because I think freedom and healing is syn- synonymous. You cannot heal unless you're free. You cannot be free unless you, you know, that is synonymous. Um, and so I'm so glad you shared what you sh- shared because in a way, this is how the world heals is when we look at it as, well, where have I asserted power in any form over someone else that, and how does that affect them? And, and have the humility to say, Hey, in any way that I have, I made you feel a certain way, I acknowledge it. And I, I, I want to change, you know, I want to chew, I want to make chew, I want to turn back, I want to, whatever it is, but it's it's the victim and the victimizer. I think is I think we're coming to this place right now where both can say, "These are my stories." There's accountability, one hundred percent. Those are distinctly different from freedom, and and yet to truly share in vulnerability, to sh- truly share in humility, that is such a beautiful and powerful gift. I would agree. Uh, it's, you know, my abuser was found guilty in November and um, sentencing was supposed to happen shortly thereafter and it's being pushed off. And, you know, there will come a time, hopefully in the next few weeks, very soon, where I'll have the ability to, um, you know, confront my abuser. Yeah, there was, there was obviously there was the trial where, you know, if you, you get this test there and point the finger, but, you know, after sentencing, I will, you know, have the ability to address the court and, and address her and kind of attempt to close the door on the situation and you know as I prepare for that and as I think about that um, there's a lot of thoughts that obviously come along with it and you know on a certain level I feel like um, I I I feel like I've come to the point where as I consider you know addressing my user one last time I feel like there's a certain level of forgiveness that is possible because I feel like as I've had a better understanding of what has happened to me, there's no shadow of a doubt in my mind that something similar must have happened to her at some point in her life. Yes. The difference between us is that I was fortunate enough to get the help and the healing to not perpetuate this cycle. And just as I'm sure that there's some must have happened to her at some phase in her life, I'm certain that something happened to the person that hurt her in their life, and so on, and so on, and so on. And you know, at at the, I think being a survivor of sexual abuse, it it requires me every day to think about, you know, to me, what's one of the most powerful realities of our world, and that is that hurt people hurt people. That's it. And it. and you it. know, I. I'm a hurt person. Yes. I've been hurt. I've been harmed. Yes. And in a certain sense, I have a choice to make, which, which is so crucial to, to the way the world goes around, not, not to put too much you know, at story my, at myself, but you know, there is a strong likelihood, statistics perspective, my having been hurt by somebody else would then translate to my hurting somebody else. Yes. And, and, you know, and I think that that, that switch from you know, victim to victimizer is instantaneous. Yes. Yes. And, and so I think someone like me behooves me every single day, excuse me, not from a sexual perspective, but, but in any sort of hurting people, you know, I've been put in a place where I've had power stripped from me. So how am I going to make sure that that doesn't, you know, play a very strong role in every relationship that I have in trying to take power from somebody else? Because that's how this cycle goes. And you know, I understand that that's the, the the unfortunate situation that my abuser was placed into, and you know, she passes that along to me, and and hypothetically, it could just continue rolling. Right. And you know, to me, that's it's a very important thought process, and to me, that's kind of what I what I need to think about daily is how do I stop the cycle? Mm. How do I not be the hurt person that goes ahead and hurts the next person? Right. Because that is really, you know what's at its core, I think, in, in this entire issue. And if, thank you for saying that. I want to, you're not only breaking 
you're not only breaking the cycle that she gave to you, that certainly this is why this is how we become compassionate as humans to acknowledge pain. Compassion cannot rise unless I acknowledge I'm pain and I'm in pain and you cause pain. Therefore you must've been in pain. Someone caused you pain. Wow. Okay. I get it. That doesn't excuse accountability. It does not excuse uh, responsibility or consequences. These are distinctly different things, and yet I can still understand, wow, you, something must have been terrible to do that to an innocent child. At the same time, I want to also acknowledge that you're breaking another cycle, not just the pain of what she did to you. You're breaking the cycle of not speaking out, and that was a cycle that was carried into your family. And then not to indict, not to say, it's just – you are now empowering your the next generation to speak. And these are both powerful cycles. So you are really a cycle breaker, breaking pain and breaking silence. And these must be seen as together. The, the only way we break pain is to speak. And the only way we break silence is to speak. And so thank you. And I, I honor you for that. And um. That's why it's not about indicting anyone. It's not, did your parents do wrong? People are going to say, well, how are you? Right? We're just people, man. Everyone's trying their best. And, we we you know, really are. We are. And I, I do want to ask this question and, and we'll wrap here soon, but I, I'm sure most people were, are listening are curious. I know I'm curious. What was your parents' response when you finally came out with all this? about um, like? And I don't mean responsive what happened to you so much as, whoa, I, we've brought this lady into our house for all these years. For my parents, it was, it, it, I think it still is in a certain sense, an intensely guilty experience, mm. right? And I, as, uh, as a parent myself now, I, I'm quite certain that my ultimate responsibility in life is to, is to keep my kids safe, period, right? You know, there's a foot of snow outside today, you know, make sure they don't go outside without their boots and their gloves and their hat, you know, and, and, and whatever it is, our goal as parents is to keep our kids safe. And obviously they grow up and they do their own thing and they live their own life and there's a limit to how much control we can have over them. But to be the one paid this woman to come into the house every day for a number of years, you know, uh, what, what, what are you supposed to do with that? Right. How are you supposed to live with that? And, you know, that is a difficult question. Um, you know, in a certain sense, I feel like grappling with that issue and the complexities of it is really where I'm deeply fortunate and appreciative and grateful that my faith comes into play. Hmm. Because at a certain point, as a believing as a, you know, as a believing man, I I really believe that there are things that happen to us that are far beyond our realm of understanding, and that. In the in the in the sphere of things as we understand them, as we understand our you know our, our life in this world as humans, parents, children, you know, whatever role it is that we play, we have a pretty defined path of how things are going to play out. And when something happens that flies in the face of that, it can leave us bewildered and overwhelmed. And how how could this have happened on our watch? And I think that's where faith comes in. And at a certain point, you know, I feel like I've said this to my parents a number of times, you know, I, I don't know why this had to happen the, specifically the way that it did. But having happened that way with all of the different things that have played out as a result of that, there is no doubt in my mind that this all is part of a much, much higher plan. Yes. Yes. And, 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 and sometimes we're called to play a role in a certain, you know, dynamic that we have no idea how we got there, why we got there and what we're doing there, mm. but we need to believe. That's and right. so, you know, I think that at its core, I think that the belief in, 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 a, in, a, in an existence in a higher power and a God that is, you know, that is making this world go around and that is facilitating the different things that go on in this world. Um, that's what you fall back on. And, and that's kind of what you know you have to rely on at the end of the day when all of the answers and the justifications and the explanations you know when you've exhausted all of those then you remember that at the end of the day we are just living in god's world and trying to you know yes. be the best at fulfilling his plan possible and and if he has things in mind that far surpass how we view our role then that's what he wants and that's what we do 
I love that. It's beautiful. Um, to close, I want to share uh, a story of my own with you because this is, I think, a cool thing. So, you know, in Judaism, they talk about the three states of the soul, the soul before the body, the soul in the body, and the soul after the body. And when I went through this, I was going through, I went to therapy every single week, sometimes twice a week for two years. And, and then after those two years, I got invited to go to this emotional intelligence training um, by a Navy SEAL friend of mine who had suffered massive PTSD and, and a lot of trauma. He was medically retired, injured in combat um, and just a beautiful soul. I just, him and his wife, I just love them. They really, I credit them for me being alive today because I, I attempted suicide at the age of 20. The suicidal thoughts never left because I felt broken, especially when we had, when I had kids, I felt even more broken because I couldn't bathe them. I couldn't be around them. If I could barely change a diaper, I was so afraid. Um, my wife literally bathed the kids for five years, three children, never, I, I could not. And I went to this emotional intelligence training and I felt so much guilt. It's part of like wanting to get out. I just felt broken. I felt like something I was wired wrong. I, everyone else worked, everyone else, their brains work. My brain didn't work. I was broken. And, and that's a just terrible state to be in. And so I sought religion. I read the Bible seven times cover to cover. And I, I could recite, I could give dissertations of belief structures and I could explain every, I was seeking like, what is the truth? Like I was grinding it out. I would crawl bloody knuckled over a broken field of glass. I would say to just know what is truth. What could I hold on to? And I went to this emotional intelligence training program and I was challenged by this group of people. I shared my story and it was the first time I felt like I could breathe air. I was like, and I didn't, I wasn't judged. No one wanted me to be anything, do anything. I didn't have to like, the concept of sin wasn't there or what this means. It's just people just love me. And they said, you know, share and heal. And after that, I bathed. I was so nervous. I bathed my kids for the very first time with my wife. My wife was with me and, and uh, I was crying. It was very like mm. a courageous moment to like, and I wasn't afraid of what I was going to do. I was afraid of remembering what I experienced. And, uh, and I went through this emotional intelligence training program and this woman who leads it, and this is what I want to share with you. We talked about the three states of the soul. She grabbed my head. I went up and I thanked her and it literally changed my life. Completely changed my life going through this. And she grabbed my head. She brought me really close and she looked me in the eyes and I was just going to thank her. I was like, Hey, thanks. I was just about to leave. I was going to catch a flight later that night. So it was a thank you. I'm leaving. And she had never, they don't talk about God. There's no spirituality involved in this thing. I never even, I didn't even know what her worldview was, but she grabbed my head and she looked me dead in the eyes and she said, God asked your soul, will you do anything for me? And your soul said, yes. So God sent you into that family. He sent you into that story so that you could relate to every single person on planet earth. And I can get choked up right now. Like I was mm, amazing. falling. I, I mean, I knew somehow no one's going to tell me, well, did that? I know somehow that's true because I've always loved God with it. I love God as there's no like, there's, that is firm. And I started crying and um, like a soul, <laughs> a soul cry. And uh, that changed my whole perspective of what all that I've gone through. Like, wow, if I chose this, then I was not a victim. I chose it so that I could help others heal. I chose it so that I could break the cycles. I chose it because this was the unique gift I was given to not just fade away in obscurity and just be another, no, nothing wrong with that, but that it's just to make an impact. You, you sharing this story right now is going to be globally heard. That is a fact. That is a fact that this, your story will be heard all over the world by people in all types of countries, all different worldviews, all different belief systems. And your soul 
perhaps chose that so that you could be here right now and share this. And I just thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for, thank you for being Chabad rabbi. Thank you for being a Chabad rabbi. Thank you for um, doing what you're doing. And it's just beautiful. And, and I just want you to know that I, I just have immense love for you, what you do. And I'm awesome. I stand with you. I just want you to know I appreciate, I appreciate that, brother. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for what you do. I think it's a remarkable thing. And I think that it just reminds us as human beings, you know, we're all in this together. We're all, we're all together. We're all like each other. And we all just need to band together and, and be mindful of that. Absolutely. Rabbi, thank you so much for joining the podcast. I honor your courage and I honor your story. And I am walking in solidarity side by side with you and i'm thankful for what you do in this world and how you be and how you are breaking cycles i have a saying for the nonprofit that i founded the vulnerable it's called vulnerable heroes and the tagline for vulnerable heroes is the pain stops with me the freedom starts with us it's those of us who have said enough it does i will it shall not pass we become the gandalf Lord of the Rings reference for everyone. We become the Gandalf of pain. We say, you shall not pass. And we process it. And it's going to be hard, but we go in, we deal, we process the pain so we don't pass it on to another. And it's not just the pain brought to us, but it's the pain of silence. And we learn to speak in courage and use our voice that we've been given. And that is what brings freedom. I had someone attack me on um an instagram message or uh, got into slid into the dms as they say but he said if you can heal yourself and others why can't you heal this family member that he was defending and my response and my saying to you is we cannot heal anyone we can hurt people you and i can hurt people but we cannot heal people but what we can do in by default in not hurting them, in being a safe place and not judging, we can ask people questions. We can share our story. And in sharing our story and asking questions, create that space for them to use their voice. And that is how they heal. This is how you and I heal the world, my friends. This is the golden rule revolution where it's revolutionary to treat people like people. It's revolutionary to become a full human being, to use your voice in love, and not vengeance, in inspiration and not attack, in curiosity and not condemnation. I'm so honored that you listen. I know you're listening around the world. I recognize you and I acknowledge you. And I am looking forward to someday, hopefully meeting all of you and know that I am with you, bringing more episodes to inspire you to treat people like people and nothing less. My name is Lucas Mack. I'll talk to you on the next episode. Thank you.